the Open Minds podcast with Paul Pizzaris. The Open Minds podcast is a podcast that talks to people who really personify having an open mind. And not only that, they're doing their bit in their community, in their human ecosystem to make the world around them a better place. And today's guest exemplifies exactly that. Her name is Lucy Lopez. She's a speaker, mentor, and meditation teacher at Get Enlightened. Lucy's got a Bachelor of Science Honours degree from the University of London. She's also got a postgrad in education from the University of Hong Kong. And for the last five years or so, Lucy has been researching cognitive psychology with an emphasis and focus on how beliefs impact uh, our well-being, which I thought is absolutely fascinating and is why I had to have her on the podcast. Lucy, welcome to Open Minds. Thank you so much, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on board, Lucy. Lucy, I thought we'd start the podcast by asking you a little bit about your journey since your studies and in particular through that you know, working journey, were there any experiences um, that were really prolific in you becoming a meditation teacher? Um, so, Paul, if, if, it, if you don't mind, I actually would love to share with you something uh, that happened when I was about 10 years old, very much earlier in my life. Um, that, and I often forget to mention this, but actually it was, I think, the first time that the seed for wanting to go into the journey of and the lifestyle of meditation was actually sowed in me. Wow. And so if I can share that with you, Most I think uh, that, that would help to to kind of see how it is that I've landed here where I am now. So when I was about 10, maybe even nine years old, one of my older brothers uh, who was doing a medical degree overseas came back home on holidays. And one afternoon, he's quite a bit older than me, one afternoon um, around about what we call tea time, <laughs> I just happened to sort of wander into the living room where he was sitting and I noticed that he was sitting like this, if I can just demonstrate. And I sat on the couch across from him and I looked at him in absolute silence and I thought, that's just how I want to feel. I had no idea what he was doing, yes. but something in me just knew instantly, this is how I would like to feel. And I might say, Paul, just to help, you know, appreciate this event in my life, I came from a very, very troubled background. There was a lot of violence in my home, a lot of violence. And so, you know, um, I was constantly, if you like, in a state of trauma, you might say. <laughs> and so for me to be able to 
find this moment of peace, witness this moment of, to me, just beautiful, absolute peace. I think it was instrumental. And I often forget to mention it, but my word, that was the first instance, I would say, of what took me in a very convoluted way to this point. <laughs> Fascinating. How much older was your brother, Lucy? He's about seven years older. I, and I say a lot, oh, I said a lot older because when you're a child, seven years is a lot. <laughs> Correct. So, so you witnessed that moment and there was something in that, that calmness, that tranquility that you really wanted to emulate. Yeah. Totally, my goodness. Yes, yes. Amazing. I had no idea what it was, but I just knew. I, got, I was that was the peace. That was the thing I was seeking to feel, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. Did you know that back then that what he was doing? No, no idea. No idea. <clears throat> um, I didn't ask him. You know, wasn't the. <clears throat> I didn't even know how I would ask him about it. Like, I, it, it didn't even occur to me to be to say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> it didn't even occur to me to say that. But just seeing it was—it was a beautiful imprint, I would say, on my mind and in my heart. Yes. Imprints, I think, are very important as we journey through life. What were some of the imprints that you had? Um, in your later years, teenage, teenage years, early adolescence and early adulthood? Mm. So, <laughs> well, imprints of uh, violence, injustice, grave injustice, um, imprints of um, doctrine, dogma from within the Catholic tradition, Imprints of, yeah, guilt, unworthiness. Yeah. Where did you grow Lots up? Lots of. I grew up in Malaysia. Malaysia. Mm. And what did your journey look like in um, transcending that injustice or transitioning out of it? Was there a catalyst? Or... Um. <clears throat> So, in my household, my mother was the, if you like, the main victim. Um, and uh, all of us children copted as well. But my mum, she got the worst of it. And it was relentless. It was daily. And it wasn't a question of when it was going to happen, but um, sorry, it wasn't a question of if it was going to happen, but when it was going to happen. But that it was going to happen was certain. I'm talking about the violence and the abuse and so on. Um, so the way I, um, looking back, the way I responded to that was to carry a lot of anger a lot of rage, a lot of resentment, a lot of, um, you know, righteous indignation um, on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, to feel incredible uh, guilt 
about not, conf if you like, um, not agreeing to what was the contracts that were being laid down on us, <clears throat> not agreeing to, um, and I did it in a very, if you like, a passive way. I wasn't uh, as a female and the youngest within the family. Um, it wasn't, um, it, you know, it, it wasn't a, a, allowed for us. We didn't have a voice, to be honest. Uh, so the voice was held internally as a silent rage and occasionally it would flare up. But, you know, even then um, it would flare up only in certain circumstances and certain places. Um, so there was all of that anger, that rage, the indignation, and then on the other hand the guilt for behaving in ways that were supposedly, you know, not conforming to the rules and codes of behavior that were expected. And then, in addition to that, feeling enormously afraid for and protective of my mother. So those were the, you know, all that was sort of bubbling and raging within me. And that was uh, pretty much what I carried through my teenage years and into my early adulthood. And certainly informed a lot of the decisions that I made. <clears throat> and then moving into, uh, you know, your, your education, um, Bachelor of Science, what, what really motivated that, Lucy? You know, that's a, <clears throat> I was always interested in science. I, um, I was very fond of chemistry and biology and I loved maths. And so I assumed that, you know, that would be where I was going to go. But quite frankly, I didn't know what I was going to do with the degree. I knew I didn't want to teach. And I knew that that was a reaction against my father, who had in one way or another declared to all his children that the only professions we uh, should be allowed to go into that was deemed noble enough for us to profess were um, the religious life, <laughs> teaching, or medicine. <laughs> so. You know, we, we were told that that was pretty much it and nothing else. So here I was very much reacting against my father. I never wanted to teach. Science, yeah. And unfortunately, that's exactly where I ended up. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you teach, uh, you teach secondary students? So I taught high school and I taught at university as well. Right, okay. And was that in Malaysia, Lucy, or where was that? I taught, no, I never did in Malaysia. I did it in Hong Kong, and I did it here in Brisbane. Right, okay. All right, amazing. And so you're a teacher, and I believe you worked in the corporate world as well, like management? Yes, management. I did. Yeah. Yes, I went into human resource management. And what a, what a marvellous experience that was because – it really showed me what I didn't want to do. 
sometimes that can be a blessing. So oh, totally, totally. Yeah. So it took a while, would you say, before you found your purpose. But everything that happened along the way was meant to happen. Certainly was instructive. Mm. When I was finally able and willing to pay attention and listen to it, um, then I was able to stop fighting and really allow that natural calling Mm. to express its voice and to start following its guidance. How did that come about, that ability to pay attention, that ability to be really present? Was that a uh, work in progress, would you say? Mm. So I would say that it was through meditation. Very much through meditation, because when I started, one of the things that was so profound and significant was being able to watch my mind in action, to literally watch my mind in action, to have that distance between myself as observer and all the activity and all the drama that was happening and to be able to recognize that all that activity and all that drama was not who I was because ultimately who I was and who I am is that witnessing presence. And so by seeing this mind in action, noticing what was pushing and pulling it, what was motivating it, what was um, uh, compelling it into particular kinds of behaviors and so on, made me realize, goodness me, you know, do I want for this mind to continue uh, running the show and calling the shots? I realized, to what extent has that been helpful? What kind of experiences has that led me to? What kind of um, emotional states has that uh, generated over the you know the period of my life thus far? It was so obvious to me that so much of my pain and suffering <clears throat> was a result of this mind that didn't know any better, that didn't know any different. Um, it was this mind calling the shots in a very habitual, in a very automatic, in a very rehearsed way. Yes. And I realized that doesn't need to continue. Yeah. <laughs> what, what a beautiful realization. Lucy, when did you first get into meditation? You had that moment as a 10 year old. Um, what I really appreciate about the day and age we're living in is they're now teaching meditation in school, early primary school. 
me personally, I didn't really know about meditation until my teens, later teens perhaps. How did you first get into meditation? So, um, you know, quite some years later, after that incident um, in, with my brother, um, I was studying in in England and I'd come back home for a holiday and I met somebody, one of my brother's friends, and she was a practitioner of um, transcendental meditation. And I was, again, that curiosity within me, that desire within me was so powerfully aroused. And I asked her, repeatedly tell me what you're doing what's happened and so she she was very scant with the information that she gave me uh but at the same time i could see that certainly from the way she carried herself and from what she did tell me that it was having a major positive impact on her life and so uh, that was another encounter and from the scant information that she gave me, I thought, let me try and put this together myself and see if I can do it. And of course, I tried, but you know, I certainly didn't. Uh, it wasn't. It didn't um, provide a kind of experience that um, would make me want to commit to an ongoing practice. So that was then. Then years later, um, in ninety one. Uh, when I first arrived in Brisbane, I think it was uh, maybe in that year or the year later when somebody invited me to the Buddhist monastery, the Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Yudlo, uh, Langri Tangpa. Hey, sorry, no, that's Langri Tangpa. Anyway, the, the Buddhist monastery in Yudlo, um, North Queensland. And um, I went there, and the person who invited me was the sister of a nun who was a resident in that monastery. And here was my third encounter. It's funny, I'm hearing myself say it in this sequence for the first time. I've never actually told the story in this particular sequence, these three events but anyway <clears throat> this how I, old were you sorry lucy how old were you this third time around oh this was in my 30s okay my 30s so i walked <clears throat> there were a group of us she gathered she was a student at qut at the time and she'd invited a group of us and i i was you know it was a weekend <clears throat> and we went into this monastery and there she was uh, her sister, the nun, greeted us. And as soon as I laid eyes on this nun, once again, that deep desire to be like that, to feel that way, to embody that kind of tranquility, that kind of peace and presence, that just welled up within me. And so... I had a taste, if you like, of um, some meditation. It was visualization mostly, not so much the, um, you know, the Vipassana kind of meditation, not that, but more visualization. And so, and then I had an amazing 
experience during one of those meditations. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, and I also remember it. It still brings up that, whoa, that was amazing. <clears throat> anyway. Are you able to share that, so, you, that experience? I'm fascinated to know. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was... <clears throat> The first time that I felt I was, there was no me. There was no you. The first time I ever, there was no me. No self. No self. The very first time. And then, it, you know, so I was like suspended. There was no I to be suspended. There was no nothing. I was... I don't know what you want to call it, free fall, I don't know. But, um, <clears throat> and then, soon enough, of course, the conditioned mind or the ego mind, yeah. hot on the heels and say, no, come back, come back, you belong with me, you know. And I felt terrified um, at the realization that, my God, I'd lost myself for a while. Totally lost myself. So that was kind of scary. But at the same time, it was liberating, right? Yeah, totally. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating. Lucy, I think it's you've touched on a really important point. You mentioned it with with the nun and the lady you met in London, your brother's friend, and that is, I think, people who have been meditating for some time, you do notice the way they carry themselves. They have a very um, calm, composed disposition. You know, and they're able to um, maintain that even when stress and pressure is upon them. You know, and and I note that um, you've been a meditation teacher now for twenty years, being registered with um, Meditation Australia. Within that period, how you know you've mentioned a very powerful experience just then, but within that twenty years, how has your personal practice developed, evolved? And perhaps you can speak also on some of the benefits you've noticed in your life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, with the personal practice, there is, there is a core component that has remained steady and stable throughout these years. And that is the core practice of mind-body awareness, mm -hmm. just noticing. Yeah. And noticing and noticing. <clears throat> and to me, um, you know, that is, as far as I'm concerned, that is foundation. That is the bread and butter of the practice. And everything else, I think, um, well, if you've got that grounding, if you've got that foundation, then everything else is. Um, both um, something that you can enjoy more, uh, but also something that is supported by this foundational practice. Um, so whilst when I first began, that was my only practice, body-mind awareness. Um, two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. <clears throat> and then um, throughout the day, maintaining that inner vigilance. Yeah. 
or at least trying to maintain that, yes, trying to maintain that inner vigilance. Of course, there's no way that I'm there 24-7. I'll be lucky if I'm there even seven minutes in total during a day. But what happens is that I can quickly come back. I notice far more quickly when I'm not in it and I can bring myself back. And that is especially helpful uh, when I am in situations that are unpleasant, where there's conflict, where there's disappointment, etc., etc. So how has the practice evolved? Well, with that foundation, I have then been able to use visualization. Right, okay. Um, And that has been incredibly powerful. Um, And so visualization increasingly has become, um, you know, another core component of what I do. In fact, my daily practice is a combination first of the mind mind body awareness and then followed by visualization in which I place my intentions for the day Um, and and that has now become pretty much my my practice that's so important so when you say that you're are you when you're visual visualizing your intentions are you visualizing yourself in that moment completing that task talking to that particular person right is, is there an totally totally is that is there what sorry is that an overlap with with manifestation absolutely absolutely yeah. um yeah. so the the point of visualization is giving you the opportunity to proactively prepare yourself and guide yourself through the day. Yeah. Independent of whatever else and whoever else may be involved. Yeah. This is really uh, key for my practice so that the nature of the visualization, the genesis of it, mm-hmm. if you like, is how I would like to feel as I'm going through various tasks, activities, and encounters. I was hoping Uh, you would lead us to that, the importance of that emotion in relation to... Totally. Totally, yes. Mm. Yes. How do I wish to feel? And, you know, this is such a powerful thing that we can do because regardless of the activity, and I know when I work with my students, for example, <laughs> they they find it, um, it's on the one hand, because we're so cerebral, most of us have been so conditioned into giving primacy to our intellect. Um, it's not always easy and we're not always willing to come from, as they say, from the head to the heart. You know, 
we, we are not willing to do that. And in fact, we're terrified of doing that because we have been taught that we cannot trust our emotions. <laughs> that we we cannot trust our heart. Don't follow your heart, follow your head. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the yeah. kind of teaching we've had. But here's the thing, with visualization, with holding intention and proactively um, engineering, if you like, your day in accordance with your emotions, there is nothing that you cannot bring into uh, intentioning. So, for example, even if it's the most rotten, awful, despised task that you need to do, you know you have to do it yeah. and you really resent having to do it and you don't want to do it. But there's no reason why you can't bring it into your intention and say, when I'm doing this, this is how I'd like to feel. So you can change the there's way you feel. Yes. There's no way. It, I mean, you've got this mind so powerful yeah, that regardless of your history, whether it's with a task or with a person, mm -hmm. there's no reason why I can say, well, when I'm meeting with that person, I know I might have felt all of this and that and the other, but mm -hmm. today when I meet with them, this is how I'd like to feel. Yeah. So wow. It's a form of, of mental preparation, you know, and it's, it's also a form of, Bringing energy, the energy spawning from the intent, the emotion, energy into form, if you like, and thus the manifestation. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. It is actually, so yes, energizing the field. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Allowing the kinds of energy that you want. Yes. Yeah. Spot on. Lucy, I want to ask you, you mentioned previously about, um, you know, meditation facilitating us becoming the witness, the observer behind our thoughts and the being the observer, similar to what we're just talking about, of, you know, being the conditioned self, our conditioned response to, say, a challenging situation. And I, I would love for you to just expand on that, to let the listeners know your viewpoint on the difference between the, the conditioned self and what you call the, the transcendent self. Okay, so the conditioned self is essentially the historical, the biographical, mm -hmm. the cultural, the yeah. religious, the political yeah. self, the personality self. Right. And all of this, all of this has been learned. Mm -hmm. It, is, it has been learned through our individual experiences, but it has also been learned through the collective experience that we inherit by virtue of being born into this physical world. Yes, yeah, yeah. Is that what Jung calls the unconscious collective? The collective unconscious, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So we are... We are conditioned by all of that. I would say that the conditioned mind is the filtered mind. It's a filtered and filtering mind. It does not see anything 
as it truly is. It sees everything as it has learned to see it. Yes. So we're we talking about the realm of the subconscious, Lucy? We are talking about, um, now, here's the thing. We, I'm really talking about the personality, the, the ego mind. Right, okay. Which has learned to see everything the way it sees it. Mm -hmm. And so that ego mind is informed by our personal experiences as well as our collective human experiences. The subconscious mind is, if you like, that field, that recording device, if you like, that records. There's the difference. There is the difference. It is indiscriminate in what it records. It doesn't make decisions one way or the other. It just records whatever information passes through it. Yes. Would I be but correct? The ego is a filtered mind. Right. So the ego is a filtered mind. Would I be correct in assuming that the, the subconscious is more likely to pay attention to events it records that have a heightened emotion attached to it, positive or negative? It's not as if it pays more attention to it, but um, if you like, the, the strength of uh, the imprint's subconscious mind. Clearly, uh, the strength is increased when, number one, it is repeated, and number two, when it is intense. Right, okay. Right. Okay. And um, what about, you know, we're speaking, you mentioned ego. And I guess this is, I'd love to bring this into your research around, uh, you know, the impact that, that beliefs have on things like our well-being. Um, would you say that there's a, an overlap between the beliefs that the ego hangs, you know, hangs onto? Um, and ultimately... I mean, my question is, does that form a big part of the ego, in your opinion, that the beliefs that we have stemming from those experiences and thoughts that you mentioned and, and the collective unconscious, um, oh, is that all interrelated? And if so, how so? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I tend to keep things very simple. I will either speak in terms of the conditioned mind and the unconditioned mind or the ego and the true self. Yes, right, okay. I keep thinking. So in both cases, in both cases, whether it's the unconditioned mind or the ego, I use those interchangeably. Right, okay. Um, as I said, everything is learned. We have learned our beliefs. And we have, you know, predispositions towards certain beliefs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we are conditioned by those beliefs they are the filters they are the very strong filters through which we create our life experiences and we experience the events in our life and interpret those events sure so when you talk about the the transcendent self the the i got the term you use was it the higher self or the true self 
where does that self come from? So, and, and this is where meditation comes in because mm. <laughs> um, unlike the conditioned self, which is the self that has learned everything it knows, the unconditioned self has is un, has never been taught, can never been taught, has never learned anything. Interesting. Yes. It's not conditioned by anything. That is the self that we could well experience when we let all our thoughts and all the preoccupations of our mind settle. Yeah. It's like, you know, in, in Buddhism, they use this um, beautiful analogy of a glass of muddy water. Oh, yeah. And at first, when you've got mud in the water, it's all murky and, you know, um, full of activity. But if you stand the glass on a table, on a stable surface, then what happens? The mud settles at the bottom of the glass. And what's revealed is this clear water, right? And that clear water was always there. It was always there. But it's only revealed when all the activity subsides. Yes, it's a very good analogy. Right? So it is not introducing anything new into ourselves from outside of us. It is merely revealing what is already there. Yes. And that true self is always present and can be experienced yeah. through meditation. Yes. And thus that, that moment that you had when you um, realized that, you know, you were beyond the I, beyond the self. And I love that word, the, the transcendent self, because I believe it, you know, alludes to the fact that you're, you're transcending the conditioning, everything that has been learned, you know. And um, and as you say, I believe that uh, that self is always there. And are there any other ways we can tap into it beyond meditation, do you think? Well, you know, a lot of us have an experience of that transcendent self in unexpected moments, mm -hmm. in unguarded moments, when we are in the presence of extraordinary beauty or in a really, you know, what we might call a, a, a transformational experience, like the birth of a child, for example. Um, you know, in these unguarded moments, if you like, the, the, the conditioning just collapses, you know, we're caught, it's disarming, we're, we're just, whoa. Yeah. But then, as I said, the conditioned mind quickly is hot on up on the heels and says, oh, come back, come back. No, 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 don't trust that. Or, you know, that was just fluke. That was just a random thing. Yeah. No, 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 don't take that seriously. Mm, yep. That's really fascinating. I mean, you know, it boils back to creation, those moments, you know, pure creation and those, those, um, you know, emotions of, of love and, and elation. How do we reconcile then between the two? And, and does ego have a lot to do with that? Is it ego pulling us back to the conditioned self, do you think? 
totally the ego is the conditioned self yeah. and that's you know the the ego is the mind of uh, fear mm. it is the mind of fear why because it perceives itself to be a separate entity yes and when you perceive yourself to be a separate entity in a wide vast world mm-hmm. where you have been trained to look out for danger yeah right that sense of constant threat is always as a residual state of stress within us we carry it as a residual state of stress in our body yes the ego then is always you know <laughs> it's so afraid it's so afraid and so it needs to protect itself and it's always on high alert Right. I agree. And it's um, also wrapped up, is it not, with that survival mechanism? I believe that totally, our species totally. wouldn't be here if we didn't have an ego. But there's also a necessary function, would you say, that the ego plays? I know when, you know, just going back to um, Carl Jung, when he talks about ego, he talks about it as being representative of, of the conscious mind. So, you know, being wrapped up in our thoughts, memories, and emotions that you spoke of. and and um, and then he breaks it down, doesn't he, in terms of the, the patterns of behaviour into archetypes, in particular the, the shadow self. Um, but he also talks about the shadow self and the ego as having components of, you know, both a, a creative and destructive energy. You know, and I'm just wondering if we could explore if there are any positives to the ego around that cultivation of the, the creative energy. Um, well, and, and the reason I ask is because I know there is a tendency, for the most part, there are negative connotations. You know, if someone is, is, is egotistical, might be a bit full of themselves, but somewhere there, I think the ego has a part to play, and it's about cultivating that. You know, to focus more on the creative side. So. When I talk to my students about the ego, Mm. I like to get them to see that our common uh, understanding and the meaning that we give to the ego is a very narrow and limited one. Mm -hmm. And that is, we, you know, as you just said, we think in terms of the being egotistical, which has got to perhaps to do with uh, arrogance and um, self centeredness and so on. But I like to encourage people to think about the ego as the mind that is unaware of its true nature. So now that is a much more vast and deep sense of the ego. It is the mind. And in Buddhism, the ultimate cause of all suffering is what they call 
fundamental ignorance. And fundamental ignorance, what is this? It is ignorance of who and what we truly are. Correct. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. It's almost as if the ego is afraid of that transcendent self because it's foreign, unfamiliar, you know. Bring me back to the things I'm attached to. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely, yes, yes. So when we start to think of the ego in this way, that it's really a mind that is ignorant of its true nature. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I like to also um, use it in parallel to the idea of original sin within the Christian tradition. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but certainly when I was raised as a Catholic, um, original sin was considered a fundamental flaw that we are flawed mm-hmm. and that we then have to spend our lives trying to redeem ourselves. And that was how I understood original sin to be. But I have now come to see that original sin, there's only one sin, and that is if you like, the original sin. And original sin is really the the sin, if you want to call it that, or the state of ignorance of who and what we truly are. I agree more. Yeah. So what about the... Let me go back to the... Predisposition that the ego has to, to to attach onto things, such as you know beliefs, and we know that a lot of people have limiting beliefs. How does one cultivate the ego or limiting beliefs, Lucy? When we when it's sometimes seeped in that ignorance, it can be very and difficult we, for some people. Yeah, yeah, it it is steeped in that ignorance and. You know, here, here's how I like to look at it. Mm. It, it's, it doesn't help us to vilify the ego. I agree. Okay. It helps us to recognize, to understand, and to be aware of it. Yes. And by it, I mean the various states of mind mm. and the attributes within those states of mind, including our beliefs, our proclivities, our preferences, our likes and dislikes, and so on and so forth. All of that is under the purview, if you like, of the ego. So when we so if we understand if we start to look at it like that, then rather than vilify the ego, um, we say, hang on, mate, I'm going to take charge of you. And when I take charge of you, you're going to become an amazing servant. Servant to whom? Right? To the transcendent self? or To the natural self, to the true self. Yeah, yeah. So the ego as the mind-body personality now is in service 
to the transcendent self. I love that. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah. Sorry, please go on, Paul. I was just going to say it it can be a work, just speaking from my own life experience, it's, it's a work in progress. You know, for me personally, it's taken many, many years of consistent meditation to to reach that realization um but anyway sorry i I cut you off you were going to say oh i i was just going to go back to the question you asked me about limiting beliefs and how do we handle these well the first is of course to uh to recognize what those beliefs are right now how do we recognize what our beliefs are limiting or empowering? How do we recognize them? We recognize them by watching ourselves, watching our thoughts, mm-hmm. watching the what we say and how we say it, yep. and watching our behavior. Correct. And I would suggest also that mind-body connection, if those thoughts we're having manifesting in a physical response, exacerbated heartbeat, perspiration, whatever that might be, then that's also an indicator. Absolutely. Mm. uh, The body provides us with feedback. It's constantly providing us with feedback. So, you know, you can't go, it's it's not easy to go directly to our beliefs. It's because the beliefs are very good, (laughs) just the way. (laughs) <laughs> the way they 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 um they reside, you know, they they're kind of all over the place, mm-hmm. and they're you know sometimes they are visible and often they're not. Yeah, and here's the thing: um, we contradict ourselves really when we start to look at our beliefs because we have what we call espoused beliefs the ones that we declare, this is what I believe. Mm. But then we have tacit beliefs, which are not necessarily the same as our espoused beliefs, right? So we've got espoused and tacit beliefs. The tacit ones are the hidden ones, and they are the true ones, the things that we truly believe. But, you know, we are so good. We've been so conditioned and we've learned how to speak so well and say the right thing and do the right thing. And also, we genuinely want to be doing the right thing and thinking the right thing and believing the right thing. But we don't necessarily actually believe the things that we declare we believe. Right. Just elaborate on that last point a little bit. So, for example, you know, uh, you may say that um, I believe in saving the environment, right? But there may be conflicting beliefs within you that really don't honor that. So you want to save the environment you want to be environmentally conscious but look at your behaviors what are your behaviors actually reflecting right okay are they reflecting that belief? does this go to unconscious bias 
Um, well, it can, it, unconscious bias is definitely uh, an example of our tacit beliefs. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Fascinating. And then that brings up ideas of uh, values as well. Yes, you know, you indeed. Have values, and you're right. Sometimes there's a, a an underlying contradiction, and um, what's the term I'm thinking of? Um, cognitive dissonance, right, is when your beliefs are, are challenged and you're compelled to, to when you have that realisation, to, to face the beliefs and um, when people experience a lot of mental turmoil when their beliefs exactly are... Right. Exactly right. Exactly mm -hmm. right. And it is the cause of a great deal of turmoil, a lot of which is very unconsciously or mindlessly um, expressed. Yeah. in our words and in our behaviours. So how then, Lucy, do people who perhaps have identified their limiting beliefs that aren't serving them, how do we go about changing those beliefs? Um, so it, it, there, there, there are a number of things that we need to be able to do. And the first of them, or the need to be able to be, and the first of them is to be willing, mm. yeah. right? To be willing to change our beliefs. So, um, you know, there I know for myself um, there are things that I might believe that I'm not necessarily willing to change. But it's only until I am willing to change those beliefs yeah. that I can actually change them. Mm. Or the other possibility is when I am confronted with an experience that is so overwhelmingly in contradiction to what yeah. I have believed yes. thus far that I may then almost you know, without any more further resistance, make that shift. Yeah, you're compelled to re-examine. Re uh, yeah. It's such an important topic in this day and age. And, you know, we think of all the, the turmoil with the pandemic as, as broad and, you know, people are, are having very fixed beliefs, even the, the political storm in the US that, that has unfolded. But I think it's an important point that you just raised is that it's only when we are presented with information that really, oh, not, I guess in a way, you know, it contradicts or the evidence is smacking us in the face that perhaps our beliefs here need to be re-examined. And that's when this cognitive dissonance comes into the, uh, into the equation. Easier said than done. But I think that's some good advice around there. What uh, you say, Paul, just with respect to that, mm. it's not about, in my experience, Yes. It's not about contradicting evidence. Okay. But more about evidence that actually affects us emotionally. Mm. If yes. that emotional shift hasn't happened, then mm. you can give me all the evidence in the world. Mm. It's not going to make the slightest difference to me. There needs to be an emotional shift. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that emotion comes about 
my point was going to be through um, through evidence being presented. You know, if we see, you know, a, a child, for instance, um, mm-hmm. you know, suffering, um, you know, and again, but again, you're, you're spot on. It, it comes back to that emotional shift that is necessary. Yeah, yeah. when yeah. we see the child suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is why, um, you know, people, we hear a lot of stuff, we read a lot of stuff, but until we've actually had an experience ourselves, a personal experience, yeah. 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 only then is there, if you like, a shift, a transformation. Exactly. exactly. Mm. Lucy, it's been really fascinating um, talking to you. I mean, we've unraveled meditation and ego and beliefs and I could honestly talk to you for hours um, but is there any any question that I, I, I didn't ask or perhaps any topic that you would like to um, speak on? Well actually because you've asked um, about how we change conflicting beliefs mm. I was just wondering I mean in your own practice um, Paul, I was wondering how you um, help your clients uh, in shifting beliefs. Yeah, sure. So the Open Mind Institute, we do a lot of mindset and performance coaching. And the first and foundational step to that is something you're very well versed in, and that is raising levels of self-awareness. And we do that through meditation, mindfulness practice, so that it's becoming consistent. And we know that the evidence suggests that upon that consistency, we're strengthening the prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain responsible for things like the regulation of our social behavior, decision-making, focus, concentration. But it's really from that platform when that self-awareness is raised that we can actually spot the stimulus response gap, which neuroscientists tells us now, it's, it's only about five seconds on average. But it's within that that gap, Lucy, that we become aware of our limiting beliefs. We become aware of the beliefs and the view that we might have on a particular issue. And it's also within that gap that um, you can recognize the conditioned self in terms of what route they're going to take or the route that your conditioned self will take upon being presented by a challenge, for instance. And then what we do is we harness things like um, evidence-based tools, cognitive behavioral therapy, journaling, for instance, so that you can start tracking the inner narrative, start becoming really familiar with your inner narrative, which is representative of your beliefs on any particular issue. Yeah. And then it's from that platform that we can move towards the transcendent self. So by asking some very basic questions like, what's another way I can look at this? How can I change the inner narrative and shift it from, you know, and sometimes it's as simple as tweaking a simple word. Instead of telling ourselves, I I don't want to do this, I can't do this, it contradicts my beliefs, Um, and tweaking a simple word from can't to how. You know, how can I do this? How can I look at this differently? And then slowly but surely we're able to do that in real time, you know, and it really holds up a mirror to your beliefs. And if they're not serving you, 
you know, how can we go about changing that so it's more um, objective, all-encompassing, and, and in being in consideration of others, you know. So that's um, how we do it in, in a nutshell. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And wh what about yourself? Because I know you do a lot of mentorship um, yeah. in addition to, to the meditation. Is this something that comes up frequently with so, your life? Um, it, it depends on what exactly. Mm. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Beliefs. Yeah. Everything ultimately comes down to beliefs um, and to what extent um, we are um, aware or unaware of our beliefs. And then once we can see whether they are serving us or not serving us, then, then, then we have, you know, a good basis for change. Um, and like you, Changing the dialogue, both internal and external, mm -hmm. really important. So I keep a <laughs> a glossary of some <laughs> the words that I think I know for myself are unhelpful. Yes, you know. So one of them, for example, is the word hard or difficult. Yeah. You know, this is hard. This is difficult, mm -hmm. and. For me, I will say, you know, really, how is it hard? And instead of that, I might say, you know, this is something that I haven't yet worked out how to do. Mm. I love that word, yet. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's one example. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing is challenge, mm. you know. And I know some people will argue for Oh yes, I must have that word. It's such a great word. It, you know, it it motivates me to climb up that mountain top. Okay, <laughs> but what I hear, and certainly um, what I've experienced myself, is that that puts a lot of stress on me. Yeah, and um. And the reason why it puts a lot of stress on me is because it's still very much governed by the ego. Mm. The ego is setting out to prove something. Or, yeah. uh, so instead of challenge, I prefer to say invitation. Oh, I like that. <laughs> you know, in other words, I'm going right to my, if you, as you, as we've said, the transcendent self. The true self that is replete with every goodness and every quality that we could possibly want to feel and express. And so the invitation, you know, to my transcendent self to bring out, to draw out those qualities that are going to, wow, make me rock this boat, make me rock the show. Not rock the boat so much, but rock the ship. Um, and it just shows the difference that a, a word can make and the power of the inner narrative. Yeah. Um, for the benefits of our listeners, two more of my favourites that I use in the coaching is, you know, if we're telling ourselves we're scared or I'm fearful of this moment, change that word of scared to excited. Mm. Uh, similar sort of uh, energy in terms of the hormonal spike in cortisol that we're feeling. Right, but just that simple shift. 
And another one is, is failure, this attachment that we have to everything that personifies failure, which just can be soul-crushing. But instead of telling yourself, I failed at this, um, you can tell yourself, well, I'm still learning, you know? Yeah, We're, totally. Learning. Yeah. Or as um, Edison was re uh, reported to have said, it's just another way I've learned not how not to do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, Lucy, we have learned tremendously uh, over the last hour or so with you. Uh, I think your knowledge and wisdom, um, you know, has the potential to, to serve serve the masses. And I just wanted to ask you, how do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more from you? What's the best way? Yes, the best way is to go to my website, okay. which is getenlightenedtoday.com. Right, getenlightenedtoday.com. Well, thank you very much, Lucy, for coming on Open Minds. It's been a, a tremendous conversation and, and an honor having you on board and um who knows there might be potential for for a future future episode well paul thank you so much for having me thank you for being such a gracious interviewer asking me such great questions uh really appreciate that my absolute pleasure thank you lucy and take care thank you paul Cheers. see you next time ciao